Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's Deputy Director. This week's guest, Claire Fuller, is the author of four novels. Her latest, Unsettled Ground, has just won the Costa Novel Award and was nominated last year for the Woman's Prize for Fiction. Esme Bright joined her to find out more about a truly remarkable work of literature. Claire Fuller, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We're here to talk about your fourth book, Unsettled Ground, which is just out in paperback. It was shortlisted for the Women's Prize and only last week it won the Costa Prize Novel Award. It's received a truly phenomenal response. Huge, huge congratulations. How have you found the whole experience? Thank you very much, first of all. Uh, Yeah, well, wonderful, amazing, surreal. (laughs) I've been following the Costa Prize for so many years, you know, when it was the Whitbread before that, and, and even doing events around it when I was a reader. So now for Unsettled Ground to have won the novel award is, yeah, surreal and wonderful. Well, it's a fantastic book and there's, there's so much to discuss. It's very, it's a very rich and evocative novel. But before we dive in, I was wondering if you could give us a synopsis for anyone who hasn't read it. Yes. Unsettled Ground is about twins, Jeannie and Julius, who are 51 years old and they still live with their mother in an isolated cottage in Wiltshire in the countryside. They have always lived a very insular life, very little technology, no transportation, no bank accounts, living very hand to mouth. And the book opens when their mother Dot dies, which isn't a spoiler because it happens at the very beginning of the book. But the story really is about how these adult twins cope with the outside world and their neighbours and bureaucracy and what happens to them. Well, I understand that part of the inspiration for the book actually came from a place rather than a story from seeing an abandoned caravan in the woods. What was it about that place that was so haunting? Why did that site stick with you? It was such an evocative place. It was full of human, um, I don't know how to put it, just a human atmosphere that someone had lived there and they were now gone, and what of them remained, and how did they manage there? What of them remained actually physically things that they had left behind? 
that I didn't go digging in too deeply. <laughs> I might have prodded it with my foot, whatever it was. Um, but also just, just the atmosphere of the place and, and how somebody had managed there. What had their life been like day to day? What was their life like after they left? It, it just made me really come up with the character Jeannie. Mm. I have to admit when, um, Jeannie's situation does lead her to the caravan, she does prod things a bit with her foot and she upturns a cushion um, and a mouse nest tumbles out and it's indifferently gobbled up by her beloved dog Maud which really made me shudder that bit but you talk about Jeannie and Jeannie is of course illiterate whereas for you reading and writing is fundamental to what you do in your being what was it what was it like getting inside her head and imagining yourself in that condition? It was really difficult because, like you said, reading and writing is fundamental to what I do and, and who I am. And always, well, certainly the reading side of things always has been. So in a way, Jeannie was the hardest character to really understand and get inside of and try to comprehend what, what that was like for her, what life was like for her without being able to, uh, write and, and read very, very little. And I would put her in situations, I can't remember what they were, go to the shop and suddenly think, oh, but how would she manage there and have to reinvent the scene? And I had, I wanted her to find a job and I thought, well, she obviously can't look online. She can't look in the local paper. Oh, I, I'll send her to the news agents because in the news agents, they have in her village, the the little adverts in the window for a gardener or a babysitter or whatever. And I got her then. It was only when she stood outside as I was writing it that I thought, well, she can't read those either. <laughs> so yeah, she was she was a tricky one. Mm. Did you do any other particular research to inform your depiction of Jeannie and Julius, or were you already clued up with things? They have some special knowledge from their way of life, you know, seasonal gardening and recipes for rabbit pie that Jeannie knows by heart. The gardening wasn't too bad. I have owned an allotment in the past. I've designed my own gardens and grown lots of vegetables. So I had to check the seasons for things and when you might plant those particular seeds. But most of it, most of it, that was fine. But there are some hospital scenes in the book and they took an awful lot of research. And I also wanted to make sure that, you know, I was writing about these people who live a very, very different life to any life I've ever lived. And it was really important to get that right and to write about it sympathetically and not judgmentally. And it wasn't possible to go and ask people who live in that way what their life is like that just was not appropriate. But I did manage to find somebody who had been a community nurse in that area, in the actual area where the book is set. And of course, she also couldn't tell me any of her particular details of the people she'd looked after, but we did have lots of conversations about rural poverty in general and, and the things she had seen in general to confirm the type of things that I was writing. You mentioned rural poverty there and the way that Jeannie and Julius live. They live hand to mouth, off the grid, and they essentially survive at the mercy of the seasons as well. And descriptions of their life might strike people as somewhat Victorian coming out of something from Thomas Hardy. But do you think that we've lost sight of rural poverty in contemporary fiction? I really think we have. When I was writing the book, and I do this for, for each book, I try to find other 
novels set in in the time period and the situation that I'm writing. And, and so I was looking for fiction about rural poverty in England in the current day, and I, I didn't find any. So I think we have lost sight of it in fiction. It is mentioned sometimes in the news in terms of phone boxes being removed and libraries shutting and things like that and how that affects people who can't get into towns and cities. But it's not really featured in literature, I don't think. Was it a social issue that you knew you wanted to put a spotlight on or was it that you saw the caravan and the rest came from that first sight? It was very much the caravan. Jeannie arrived, her mother arrived, her brother arrived and I understood their situation and I understood therefore it was rural poverty that was their biggest challenge. I never really start with a theme or a subject that I want to discuss. It, it emerges as I write, really. Well, you, you dealt with their lives very sensitively and intelligently. And I was also struck by the way that you presented their situation with warmth, but without any nostalgia. And do you think that this vision of country life and, you know, living off the land and being at one with nature, that, that nostalgia can be a bit dangerous? Do you have any thoughts on that? Dangerous, I don't know, or just it's easy to to imagine the countryside as as an idyll, as a lovely mm. place. Even if you live in it, maybe it can often be seen like that. You know, lovely country walks with the dogs and welly boots and Range Rovers and yeah. village shops and and country pubs and all those lovely things that if you live in a town or a city or or often even in the countryside, we do enjoy. Lots of us do enjoy, but it's not all like that. I know that it's not all like that, but the rest of it is hidden, I think. In some of the events that I've done, I've spoken to teachers in rural schools who have said, especially in lockdown, it, it became apparent how little technology, for instance, there was in some of these homes and how children didn't have access to computers. And so when they were being taught at home, there was no online learning for them. And that kind of thing is, I think, is hidden. It's interesting you bring up lockdown as well. I wonder, did you write this pre-COVID and have you imagined Jeannie and Julius, what would have happened to them during lockdown? Yeah, it was well pre-COVID. Yeah, yes. I finished, I think I finished it in something like 2019. Mm. Um, what would have happened to them? Well, if you kind of imagine them in COVID with their mother still alive, actually they probably would be almost quite well prepared in a weird way because they were used to being alone. They were used to growing their own food. They were used to their own company, making their own music at home. But post COVID, I'm really not sure how they, how they would have coped. Uh, yeah, it would have been a big struggle for them. Speaking of community and COVID, lots of people talking about banding together. But while Jeannie is a very strong character, part of her circumstances does make her vulnerable. And there are some really heartbreaking moments in the book where members of the village take advantage of her as she slides into poverty, while others, you know, there are acts of kindness that shine through. How did you set about creating that community? And is there something about that, you know, village, sometimes pitchforky mentality that intrigues you? Oh, village life really, really intrigues me. And the eccentrics that you still find in villages and how people in villages view them and the village gossip and the village grapevine and all that, all that community, which you don't 
find very much usually in cities, although it is quite interesting during lockdown how that has changed somewhat. So, so the street I'm in, I'm right at one end of it. And I, if I walk into town, I walk away from the street. So I never really knew my neighbours. I've been here for 16 years. But during lockdown, we all joined a WhatsApp group and we all chat and now we all know each other. I know I'm going off the subject, but it becomes a little bit more like that, a little bit more villagey mm. because we now know our neighbours more. But th there are so many stories kind of ripe for the picking, I think, in, in village life, in that community life and how people see each other and the, the assumptions they make, I think, is also quite interesting. When somebody is a little bit different from everyone else, you, you we all make some assumptions about them. Speaking of assumptions, there's a question that recurs through the book, which is about what it means to be against nature with villagers gossiping about two adult siblings that shouldn't be living together. And then Jeannie, who goes to live with Bridget at one point and just thinks that that life of plasma tellies and frozen meals is, is just horrific. But um, the relationship between Jeannie and Julius, how did you set about writing that and their closeness in a way without judgment? Because I just, I really, I think I tried to imagine what it would be like. I mean, in a way, that's how you create any character in fiction. You have to really, really try to put yourself in that person's head. And at the beginning of the novel, obviously, that's quite hard to do because you still don't know who they are. You're discovering who they are. But as the book progresses, you know, and I become closer to them and, and know who they are as characters, they I know it's my own subconscious, but they start doing things or they don't do things that I, tr that I as the author try to make them do because they have become fully rounded characters. But there are sometimes moments where I find I don't know one of the characters that I've written very well. And then I will sometimes open up a new word document. So I don't kind of write into the word in progress, work in progress. And, and I, always had it, we need to talk about. And then I have a little chat with Jeannie. So we need to talk about your brother. And I have a written conversation with her and I ask her questions and she replies and, and I learn about her more that way. And I, I do it for all characters that I, or a scene that I'm a little bit iffy on. And, and it obviously taps into my subconscious in some way and that get to know them better. Gosh, what an imagination you must have. That's <laughs> fabulous. I love the idea of margins full of, full of interviews with your characters. But Jeannie does have a, she has a special quality. And there's a moment which I, I really loved in the book when she's in a very typical clinical register office waiting to obtain the death certificate of her mother, which as we said, she also can't even read. But she notices that on the wall, you write, there's a large painting of flowers in a vase. Lily of the Valley and roses, flowers that don't bloom at the same time. She's different and she doesn't fit in in the usual way, but her oddities mean that she notices other things in the world that others don't. And I wondered if that was a quality that you recognise in yourself as an artist and a writer. It's hard to say, isn't it? Because I only know my own head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know that I am, I think I am quite an observant person and I do, or maybe it's just nosy. I don't know. I do try to overhear conversations. And if I see someone walking down the street, I try, I actually do kind of dis 
describe them to myself and wonder where they're going and where they've been and who they're seeing next. And, and I'm always kind of inventing little stories for people that I see and places that I go. Um, yeah, maybe. Mm. <laughs> well, the, the death of their mother, it, it tumbles the twins into the present. They're forced to confront how they've been left behind by their peers and catch up with the modern world. And I wondered if writing the novel changed your own perspective and your own views on modernity and how how we're living our lives at the moment. Well, one thing that I'm I was interested in really perhaps before even before I wrote the book was making sure it's that that I don't buy too much stuff. Mm. Or that I'm really aware of everything I buy and where it comes from and what will happen to it after I finished with it. It's not to say I don't sometimes go and buy something that is completely useless that I just happen to want. We, I'm sure we all do that probably far too much, but I do really try to do it consciously. So in that way, you know, I keep my mobile phone for as long as I possibly can until the manufacturer no longer supports the operating <laughs> system because I do find that there's something wrong in wanting new things for the sake of new things. Although, mm. as I said, we do all do it to a certain extent. Um, so that kind of lifestyle is, is it has always been important to me. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. There's a, a very poignant moment when Jeannie takes out the tin to, which holds the family savings and swirls her fingers around and counts only £3.50. And um, imagine... Getting into that mentality of your characters must have changed ways that you see certain things. And there's um, Claire McIntosh. She is on the front cover of your beautiful book. I actually want to talk to you about the cover in a minute, but she described the book as pitching the perfect balance between beauty and melancholy. And I wondered if you found when writing and editing that you ever had trouble finding that balance and combining something beautiful and poignant and it's sometimes also quite aesthetic with decay and despair and loneliness. I do absolutely recognise that those two things are in balance in the book, but I don't think I found it particularly difficult because I think that <laughs> all my novels and all my writing balance or I'm trying to balance those things without even necessarily being aware of it because they they are all quite sad 
and they all uh, have something natural in them, whether it's the sea or the forest or the countryside, and so beauty in that way. But they are all quite melancholic mm. or bleak, if you <laughs> if you want, with with some elements of hope. But I think that I, I'm not sure I could ever write simply a happy book. It's just <laughs> not. It's just not in my nature. Well, speaking of the cover, as I did earlier, you've, um, the new one for the paperback is, it, it beautifully reflects this idea of decay and also time catching up with these, these twins. It's got a Dutch old master still life of flowers against a portion of a still life of decaying apples by the British surrealist Tristram Hillier. And I wondered, did you have any involvement in that design? I didn't. No, they, Penguin sent it to me uh, and kind of just say, we hope you like it. Oh, good. <laughs> and luckily, I really did. I think it demonstrates that balance, doesn't it, of, of beauty and melancholy or beauty and decay. I love the fact that there are two flawed apples on the, at the front. You know, they mm. are Jeannie and Julius to me with a little beetle just on one of the apples. In the hardback, they had flies that were on my name which just really looked like a real fly, like you wanted to brush it off. But when it, when they sent me the the first kind of draft of this cover, the beetle was missing a leg, and I made sure I pointed out that beetles need a couple more legs there. <laughs> <laughs> it's so beautiful. I thought it was pitch perfect as well, having a surreal element on the front cover, as sometimes when, you know, Jeannie does bring some surreal perspectives onto things and makes what modern life is seem a bit bizarre and there's a piano in the middle of the woods that's there forever but you spoke about your other books and something that I do notice runs through the others is um, some strange family members and part of the issue with this book is the death of Dot at the beginning and then her death haunts the rest of the story as the twins are left to reevaluate everything that they thought was true and how how did you approach revealing their history and this element of mystery? Well, the, there is a, there's very much an element of mystery, but it was important to me that the mystery and the secrets and the things that are revealed, the readers, the reader might well have a big idea of what those are going to be. And so the mystery and the reveal is for the sake of Jeannie. So the things that she learns are shocking to her. And they might not be shocking to the reader because, in fact, for close readers – Everything is actually given away in the first chapter. I wouldn't necessarily expect readers to pick up on that, but it is there if they want to find it. So the mystery that's revealed is for Jeannie's sake. But all my novels have an element of mystery. And and I got to the end of Bitter Orange, the previous novel, and I thought, no more mysteries, Claire. No more mysteries. Done it with two mysteries, okay? And then I was writing without a plan, without a chapter synopsis or anything like that and certain things started I started writing certain things that I didn't understand myself and then it was you know much later in the book I worked out what those could be and a mystery arrived let's put it like that and and I thought oh god there's a mystery in it again <laughs> can't resist <laughs> yeah so so that and it, and it became absolutely integral to, to Jeannie's character. It, mm. She would be a different person without that. So it, it had to stay in the end. Yes. 
Well, let's uh, leave readers to find out what that mystery is, but I promise it's worth it. It definitely makes for a very rewarding read. I said earlier that due to the death of the mother, the twins are thrust into the present and the lives of those around them. But there are moments when real joy is found for the twins and it feels like time stops and they're allowed to just simply be. And that often comes from them playing music. And I wonder if you could read a passage, which is after they've just performed at their first gig in a local pub and are brimming with pride and adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. The other thing I should also point out that Maud that gets mentioned in this passage is a dog. (laughs) (laughs) As they walk back to the caravan, Jeannie thinks she might be drunk, although she doesn't know what being drunk feels like. And she only had a couple of the drinks that were bought for them. She has a giddy, giggly excitement, which makes her want to talk and laugh. She and Julius debate each song they played in the audience's reaction, singing snippets loudly and shoving each other about. There is a full moon, and by its light, the wasteland is transformed into a charming spinney. The rubbish is invisible, and only the trees and bushes in black and white remain. They stop by the piano. Rain has crazed and flaked the varnish. Water has penetrated the top and the key lid. Some notes don't play, and those that do have a hard quality without resonance. But Julius puts his fingers on the keyboard, and they sing nonsense songs together. There was a frog living in a well, and the herring's head. Songs they sang as children with their parents. They belt out the words, making up those they've forgotten, unconcerned about the missing notes, and stopping only when Maud's excited barking from inside the caravan becomes too frenzied to ignore. Oh, it's beautiful. Them just playing with abandon under the stars in the middle of a wood after all this hardship. It's incredibly important to Jeannie and Julius. How would you describe the role of music in the book and why did you choose to weave it into their stories? It is really important, but it did come accidentally, almost like everything else, really. (laughs) Um, I try to work out a playlist of music that I want to listen to when I'm writing. And often it's a whole artist's work or a few albums. With Unsettled Ground, it came down to two tracks in the end. So for two years, I listened to two pieces of music. One was an old English folk song called Polly Vaughan. The version I listened to was sung by Tia Blake. And then also a song that my son, Henry Ailing, wrote called um, We Roam Through the Garden. And both of those are just such beautiful pieces of music, very melancholic. And and they, I guess, informed the melancholic nature of the novel. And so Jeannie and Julius are folk musicians. They play these pieces of music. There are These lyrics are in the book, as are other pieces of music. And so I hope that the music for the characters and for the readers lifts the book, gives it some bit of joy and And at the end, the music provides some hope for Jeannie for the future. I'm not sure she'll take, take the offer, but, but it's there at the end of the novel. And, and also a couple of other things for music. So Jeannie, who, as you said, is illiterate. I think that the, her skill with playing the guitar demonstrates that she is not a stupid person. Traditional education has failed her or she's failed it, but she is a very clever, talented person capable of great learning. So the music, I think, I hope shows that. But it also is a way that 
for Jeannie and Julius to communicate together on another level. So at Dot's wake, Jeannie starts playing as a means to call Julius to her. So, so there is that kind of communication going on as well. There's a beautiful moment when she can hear him playing. She's on the street and she can hear him playing in a window. And you describe it as, I think it's achingly sweet, like a pear drop caught in her throat. And then she hears him stop and laughing with someone else. And she knows in that moment that she's lost him. And it's so heartbreaking, but it's beautiful how their lives are woven together through music. And it also anchors a lot of their childhood memories. And I wondered if you could talk about the role of memory in the book and that tension between perception and reality. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff about perception and reality, especially around Dot, because she dies at the beginning of the novel. And so she is not on the page. We can never really hear her speak. We can only have her children's memories of her and other people in the village, their memories of her. And I was quite interested in how that would work and how it works after somebody dies when people talk about them and they're often what they say about them is always positive. And it starts that way with Dot. Everybody says positive things about her, but gradually it comes out she has done a terrible thing and this is gradually revealed. And so I hope the reader's perception of her changes as does her children's perception of her. And they have to deal with that. Jeannie has to come to terms with the fact that her mother is not the woman she thought she was. So that is all slowly revealed, partly through memories and the fact that Jeannie's and Julius's memories just slightly are slightly different, and that reveals certain things that the world was not as they knew it. Music is so important to them as it's also their real singular hope of preserving their way of life, passing their songs on to others. And when we see them play in the pub, we see how it unites them with the village, even after everything they've been through, and people have sometimes attempted to take advantage of them. Do you feel that by the end of the novel that the brighter parts of human nature prevail? And is that something you believe? Oh, well, yes, I like to believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, you know, that, that's that community and people helping Jeannie and her accepting help by the end of the novel. That is, I don't think it gives anything away to say that is how she's changed. Mm. So she does understand that we need people around us and it's fine to ask for help and it's fine to us to accept it when it's offered. So that's kind of the lesson that she's learned. And that's, I think, the hope at the end of the novel that she has a community around her. She has some women that she has become friends with. But then there is also very sad things <laughs> at the end of the novel as well. And I don't think everyone has learned this lesson. I mean, we do, there's one particular character, Ed, who we don't really ever see again. We don't really learn what's happened to him. And I suspect he hasn't really changed. But as she says at the end, it's, it's hard to rewrite your own history. And it's about having her people around her by the end. Claire Fuller, it's been such a delight to speak to you. I've really, really loved your book and cannot recommend it enough. And again, a huge congratulations on your recent win. I hope you're over the moon with that. But thank you so much for giving us your time today and speaking about Unsettled Ground. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. This week's show starred Claire Fuller, 
and was presented by Esme Bright. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. Browse our archives for more interviews with literary luminaries, from Isabella Allende to Ian McEwan, Elizabeth Gilbert to William Gibson, and sign up to our mailing list to find out who we're hosting in our live programme. You can find out more at howtoacademy.com. To play us out, here's Claire's son, Henry Ayling, with We Roam Through the Garden. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow, do you know?